First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom, to, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage just read, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. And as we're finishing up in the next two weeks, our series in 1 Timothy let me just paint a picture for you of the church in Ephesus that young Timothy was pastoring, and hopefully that'll set the tone a little bit as we, we close out this book in the next two weeks. You know, we get the impression from chapter one that this church that Timothy was sent to is infected with false doctrines and false teachers who are leading people astray. We get the impression from chapter 3 and 5 that the elders of the church weren't cutting mustard with their character. So Paul tells Timothy to find elders out there who have good character. And in light of chapter 5, there might even be some elders who need to be publicly rebuked for their sin. From chapter 2, we can infer that many of the men in this church are prayerless. They are cowardly. They are quarrelsome in their conduct. From chapters 2 and 5, we can infer that many of the women were idle, worldly, negligent of their families, in some case, cases immodest in their dress. That's the picture of the Ephesian church that Paul paints for us in this letter. And so all this, from last week's passage, we saw that Timothy, Paul tells Timothy at the end of the letter to stay away from some of those stubborn sins that have infected the church. Some of those include insubordination, dissension, discontentment, greed, or as I called it last week, money lust. Those stubborn sins were stealthily infiltrating the church and destabilizing the church in Ephesus. So let me just summarize the situation for you. This church was a mess. This church was dysfunctional. In so many ways. And Timothy, who was young, timid, even a little sickly. Remember Paul's counsel to him, drink a little wine with your water because you're sick all the time. This guy has to go to Ephesus and fix this mess of a church. I don't know about you, but if I was Timothy, I'd be tempted to do a Jonah right now. <laughs> and jump on a boat and head for Tarshish. But that's not what Timothy did. He stuck it out. He labored to bring this church back to a place of health. 
And from what we can gather in 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, Timothy was still laboring in this church, helping them, building them up in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's because of Paul's words at the end of 1 Timothy. Maybe these words motivated him during the difficult times of life and ministry. Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, don't give up, young Timothy. Don't stop fighting. Don't stop laboring. Quitting is not an option. Christianity is not for wimps. Stay in there and fight the good fight of faith. I wish I could say that Timothy's experiences... You know, having to fight the good fight of faith, like, like that was unique or unusual. It's not. That is the Christian life. History and experience has shown me that Christianity is a fight. Christianity is not for the faint of heart. Anyone who comes to Christ with, with these faulty notions of a life of leisure and tranquility, they're in for a rude awakening. Following Christ is difficult. And that doesn't mean there isn't peace. There is peace. But it's a peace in the midst of the storm. It's a peace inside of our hearts as the Holy Spirit resides within us. In reality, though, in our world, Christianity is a call to fight. Today's message is entitled, A Call to Arms. We're not called to leisure. We're called to fight. And we're going to see in this text an exhortation for us to struggle and to bite and to claw and pursue Christ all the way to the end of our lives. And as we fight, Paul's going to relay for us four weapons of warfare that will help us along the way. I'm, I'm calling these, this is in your notes, four strategies for spiritual warfare in the Christian life. Write them down. The first one might surprise you. Here's the first strategy for spiritual warfare. Here's what you do. You flee. You run. Paul says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, notice that designation that Paul uses for Timothy. He doesn't say young man. He doesn't say timid Timothy who's always sick. He calls Timothy a man of God. That's the only time that expression is used in the New Testament. And it's, it's a compliment. I would say it's both a commendation of who Timothy is and a call to arms. Man of God, man up. And, and fight the good fight of faith. By the way, this designation, man of God, it was used a lot in the Old Testament with reference to prophets and priests and those who had exemplary character who were leading the nation of Israel. Moses is often referred to as the man of God. It's a huge compliment to Timothy that Paul would use this term for him, but he's, he's using it to motivate him for the difficult job he has to do in Ephesus. But as for you, O man of God, flee, that's the strategy, flee these things. Flee what things? What are the things that Timothy must flee from? Well, look at what we looked at last week. Look at verses 4 and 5. We've got conceit. We've got ignorance. We've got an unhealthy craving for controversy. We've got quarrels about words. We've got envy. We've got dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Flee that stuff, Timothy. Later in verses 9 and 10, we've got an unhealthy desire to get rich. We've got the love of money. Paul's saying here, leave that behind, Timothy. 
That's what false teachers chase. You don't chase that. Instead, you run from that. You flee. Paul tells Timothy later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue instead righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So this, this isn't an isolated strategy in 1 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy to flee twice. Flee. Flee from these sinful passions that are so common in our world and tr that try to trip you up as a leader in the church. And that might, that might surprise you here that Paul tells Timothy to run before he tells him to fight. That's a, it's a defensive strategy built into this statement. Sometimes as a Christian, you got to know when to stand, to fight, stand and fight. Sometimes you got to know when to run. It's a legitimate strategy on the battlefield. It's also a legitimate strategy in the Christian life. Let me say it this way. You got to know when to hold them. <laughs> know when to fold them. Know when to walk away and know when to run. That's so good, someone should write a song about that. Some of you history buffs, you might know that, that actually running was an integral strategy for George Washington in the Revolutionary War. Some of y'all might even know that Sam Houston, that was basically his technique to win the Texas Revolution. Run, 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 until the opportune moment at San Jacinto when he was able to win. So it's a legitimate, it is a perfectly legitimate military strategy. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Talk about running, right? From temptation, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He didn't just stand there and try to fight, you know, mm, I'm just going to fight this temptation with this woman. No, he, he got out of there. Even as she was grasping his clothes, he's like, I'm out of here. I can't deal with this. And he got out as fast as he can, as he could. Listen, as a Christian, you got to know when to flee. You got to know when to put some distance between you and that temptation that so easily entangles you. Sometimes that means fleeing to your spouse in the midst of a temptation. Sometimes that means fleeing to a trusted friend and confessing your struggles. Sometimes that means fleeing straight home after work and not dickering around with a bunch of your temptations. But, but flee them, run from them. I know Paul's speaking in metaphor here with this, this command, flee these things. We're talking metaphorically, but sometimes we need to apply that counsel literally. Like get yourself away from the computer if that's the issue. Flee from it in a moment of temptation. Here's a second strategy. So we got flee, there's also follow. You flee sin and you follow. Look at the back half of verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Pursue these six things, says Paul. This word pursue is this Greek word, dioko, and it means to pursue or to follow in haste. It means to strive to do something with intense effort, working towards a goal. And it's, I mean, this is interesting, flee, follow. This twofold strategy is pretty common with Paul. He talks about putting on and putting off in Ephesians and Colossians. Put off your old self, put on your new self. 
He tells us in Galatians to, to put to death the deeds of our flesh while simultaneously cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Get away from this, go towards this. Move away from this, move towards this. It's, I mean, it's pretty common, that, that twofold strategy. And here, it's, it's flee and follow. You, you flee sin and you follow God or the attributes of God. You bolt from sin and you bolster in your life righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Just a note, I've been a here. So Paul gives us six characteristics in verse six. These are examples of what theologians call communicable attributes. Some of God's attributes are incommunicable, meaning we'll never get them, we'll never catch them. Think omniscience, think sovereignty, think omnipotence. Those are God's attributes and God's alone. But some of God's attributes are communicable. You can catch them, and it's good to catch them. Think love here. Think righteousness, godliness, gentleness. You, you want to catch these things. So let's just let's talk about some of these. Righteousness, what is that? It's a reflection of God's character that we can exhibit. The Greek word is diakosune, and it, it means pursuing that which is right and good and just in this world. We want this. Also love. You know, if you want more on, on love as a communicable attribute, come on Wednesday night. We're talking all about it in 1 John. This attribute that we have, God showed us love, and so we're called to love one another. And here we're called to pursue that even. Steadfastness, gentleness, all of these are reflections of God's character that we can exhibit. And Paul says, at the same time that you're fleeing from sin, at the same time you're, you're running away from these things, run towards these other things. I think this is really helpful because it means that as a Christian, we don't just stand around waiting to wrestle the devil or something. Neither does it mean that we just sit around idly waiting for Jesus to return. No, the Christian life is active. We are actively pursuing God. We are actively pursuing the characteristics of God. Paul says in Galatians 5, we walk by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. There's movement in that. We're, we're moving. We're walking. You know what the great enemy of Christianity is? Of your spiritual growth? It's not regression. It's not going backwards. The great enemy of the Christian life is stasis. It's staying the same. I, I'm, I'm as good as I'm going to get, Lord. Just, just let me stay here. No, you continue. You walk. You progress. You grow as a disciple all the way until the end of your life. You don't just run from sin. You run towards the Lord and you run towards Christian character. How do we run towards these things? These Christian virtues, righteousness, godliness, faith, love. How do we manifest these godly characteristics in our life? Well, if you want to imitate God, if you want to catch his communicable attributes, you spend time with God. And wouldn't you know it, as you pray and as you seek the Lord in Scripture, you start to take on his attributes. You start to live your life more like him, not perfectly, but increasingly. If you want these things, if you desire these things, then desire God and pursue God. 
And these things come with that. I heard a pastor say once that he knows a lot of people who love theology and love to, to study God, but they don't really like God himself. They don't really want to know God. They just kind of want to know all the ideas of other men about him. And I, would that be true of you, Christian? I like the idea of God. I like theology about God, but ultimately the pursuit of righteousness, godliness, faith, even theology itself, these ideas, this is a pursuit of God. This is the pursuit of a relationship with God. And as we pursue him, these things follow. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Without God, there's no such thing as virtue. Without God, there's no fruit of the Spirit. Without God, there's no communicable attributes. So we flee. We follow. Go ahead and write this down as number three. We fight. We fight. Look at verse 12. Every Christian in this room should have this verse on the tip of your tongue. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Show some de determination in your life, Timothy. Show some grit. Fight what? What are we fighting? Well, we're fighting against sin, the flesh, and the devil. Take your pick. Go after all of them. Speaking of sin, Billy Sunday said once, said, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, fistless, footless, and toothless, I'll go, gum it till I go home to glory. <laughs> and it goes home to perdition. That's the mentality that Christians should have. The Greek word here for fight is this word, agon agonizomai. And it's followed by this Greek noun, agon. So Paul is telling Timothy here, Agonizomai the good agon. Fight the good, struggle the good struggle. Conflict in the good conflict, the good fight. Not the bad fight, but the good fight. What's the bad fight? Well, there is bad fighting too. We saw that earlier with that different doctrine teacher. Verse 4, he's got an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, produce envy, slender, uh, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved and deprived. That's not the good fight. That's, that's the bad fight. That, that's the wrong fight. By the way, fight here, so I, I know, I mean, this is military city USA, right? And I've entitled this message, A Call to Arms. But really, this metaphor, this terminology isn't, don't think military here, think athletics. Because that's what's being portrayed here. Two, think Think two bare-knuckled boxers in a ring duking, duking it out. That's what Paul is describing here. That's the picture Paul's painting for. That's the metaphor that Paul uses to describe the Christian life. Paul does use a military metaphor elsewhere. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, wage the good warfare. 
So fight like a soldier, fight like an athlete. Bo both are used there. Literally, Paul says something like battle the good battle in 1 Timothy 1. Later in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In other words, stay focused on the spiritual battlefield. Paul uses both of these, the military imagery and the athletic imagery, to analogize the Christian life. And the idea here is that Christianity is a great struggle all the way to the end, and God has called us into that great struggle. You know, I get the sense that a lot of people, when they come to Christ, they don't, they don't come to Christ with that mentality. I think a lot of Christians are sold a false bill of goods. Like, if you come to Christ, your life will be safe and easy and comfortable. If you, you know, vote for Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. As if Jesus is like a cosmic butler here to do all of your bidding and to make your life cushy and and, and desirable and pleasing. Christianity isn't presented that way in the New Testament. Christ doesn't call us to leisure. He calls us to battle. Pick up the weapons of warfare and get in there. And I, I realize maybe somebody, some in this room came to Christ under false pretenses. Some of you maybe were told when you came to Christ, you know, come to Jesus and every, every great thing will happen in your life. Look, we do await an eternity of rest. We do look forward to an eternity without fighting, where we rest in Christ Jesus and in our relationship in Christ Jesus. But that hadn't happened yet. In the meantime, in the present day, we fight. Christianity isn't for wimps. It requires, here's a great word, I wish Christians used this word more. Christianity requires grit. Christianity, it requires fighters, not cowards. I need to be careful here. I, I know I get fired up about this kind of stuff. But just as a reminder, the strength that we, that we utilize in this fight, it's it's not something that's produced in our flesh. Paul said, in my weakness, I am strong. Paul said, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of strength. This is a supernatural strength that God supplies and that God produces in the Christian. This is a divine determination that he builds inside of us. It's the fight of faith. It's, it's a supernatural fight. It's a fight that God has to supply for us and also that God gets the victory for. And as part of that, Paul says in verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I mean, this this take hold verb, this imperative, it, it, it intimates even violently grabbing hold of something. This is the word that was used of Jesus when he pulled Peter out, out of uh, Galilee when he was falling, seizing Peter. Similarly here, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
In other words, part of your fight involves clinging to the promises of eternal life that God has given us. Use that as a motivation for faithfulness and godliness. God never promised us that this life would be easy, but he did promise us eternal life. And that makes all of the difficulties that we experience in this world pale in comparison. By the way, part of this fight involves forthrightness. Notice what Paul told Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. Everybody see that in verse 12? The good Christianity is a confessing religion. Just turn to your neighbor right now and tell him that. Christianity is a confessing religion. Here's the Greek word for confession, homologeo, and it means, it means profession or confession or acknowledgement. Not only did Timothy do this, but he did it in the presence of many witnesses. He was vocal about his faith. He didn't hide it under a bushel. No, 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 Pastor Tony, I, you, know, you don't understand. I'm one of those secret Christians, those silent Christians. No, you're not. Those don't exist. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me, another way to translate that, confesses me. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. So, Fourthly, four strategies for spiritual warfare. Flee, focus, fight. Flee, follow, fight. Here's, here's the last one, focus. What is that, a chainsaw? What is going on out there? <laughs> Turn my microphone up. Can y'all still hear me? Just white noise. Just, just block it out. Verse 13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who, will, who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. There's, look, see that confession language again? That's, that's that same word, homologia. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it's true, you, you have said so. That's the good confession that Paul alludes to here. So in other words, Jesus confessed before Pontius Pilate. Timothy, likewise, is to confess, make the good confession before many witnesses. And by the way, Jesus made that confession before the most powerful person in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he ruled Judea from AD 26 to 36. Jesus bravely and unapologetically made the good confession before him, even though Pilate had the power to put him to death. And so what he's asking us to do here, Timothy, is to follow suit with that same kind of courage, that same kind of conviction. It's also interesting to me how Pontius Pilate, you know, you look at this, this person who was a Roman governor, and he's immortalized now as this enemy of Christ Jesus, the one who caused his suffering. The Apostles' Creed, if you've ever read the Apostles' Creed, there's three human beings that are mentioned there. There's Jesus, there's Jesus' mother Mary, and then there's Pontius Pilate. 
who's been recited for 2,000 years. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and dead. So talk about eternal infamy, this guy. And Paul says here, I charge you, Timothy, before God the Father and God the Son, who testified before the infamous Pontius Pilate, to what? Charged to what? Look at verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. What's the commandment? I think Paul's speaking here about the command from verse 3, which is fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. More generally, he might be referencing the commandment to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The true convert will persevere in faith. The false convert shrivels up like the seed in Jesus' parable that was scorched by the sun. Now stay with me here because Paul's, Paul's about to go doxological in verses 13 through 16. And it's, it's easy to get lost in everything that he says here, but let's just kind of take it apart piece by piece. What he's essentially telling us as he closes out this section is, if I can put it succinctly, God is awesome. So focus on him. That's part of spiritual warfare. Get your eyes on Jesus. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. When's Jesus coming back, Pastor Tony? I don't know, but I know it'll be at the proper time. There's two things that Paul's encouraging Timothy to focus on here. The return of Christ, focus on Christ. Christ is coming soon, Timothy. So stay faithful because of that. He's, he's focusing on that, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, but also the awesomeness of God. In other words, be, be vigilant. Don't, don't stay faithful as a Christian because you think it'll bring you a life of leisure and luxury, Timothy. Stay faithful to Christ because Christ is coming soon. Don't flee from sin because, you know, just because, because, you know, righteousness, godliness, and the rest are better. I mean, sure, that's true. But do these things because Christ is coming soon. His return is imminent. Whether by death or by rapture, the end is near. This is, this is what's referred to as Paul's eschatological view of reality, meaning that Paul was always focused on Christ's imminent return. Jesus is coming soon. So, and when Christ returns, we, we, don't, we don't want him to find us indulging our flesh or twiddling our thumbs or just doing nothing beneficial at all. But here, here's another reason for us to focus and to stay faithful in verses 15 and 16. Here's the second great motivator, and it's basically this. God is awe-inspiringly stupendous. Paul just, I get the sense Paul's writing, just writing, 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 and then all of a sudden something just, catches hold of him, and he just starts exploding in praise to the Lord. Like he can't help himself. Something like that happens here. 
Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. Who's he? Let me tell you about he. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Y'all feeling this? Just, just an exploding, explosion of doxology. While we're talking about this, Timothy, God is awesome. Let me tell you about it. Remember in Ephesus, I mean, this is that city where Timothy's pastoring. This is that city where people were going around screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they screamed that. Well, this is Paul's counter to that. This is his retort. Artemis ain't nothing. Our God is the real God. He's the only God. Let me just explain some of the components of this doxology. Paul says that he, God, is the blessed and only sovereign. And this is a reference to both the Father and the Son. They are both rightfully identified as sovereign over the world. The word sovereign is a reference to God's identity as a ruler over the universe. He's the, he's the ruler. He's the sovereign of the universe. Paul also calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. And that's so patently obvious, it's, it's almost an understatement. Even the great king Nebuchadnezzar of the Old Testament called Daniel's God, Yahweh, the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And, that, and by the way, that's not a designation for God the Father only. If you remember when Jesus shows up in Revelation 19, he's got emblazoned on his robe and tattooed on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. So we're not, we're not just talking about God the Father, we're also talking about the second person of Trinity, God the Son. And Paul says that God alone has immortality. That doesn't mean that, that human beings aren't immortal. We are. But we will only live in eternity future. God, on the other hand, existed in eternity past. He lives in eternity present. And he will exist in eternity future. And in fact, I would say it stronger than that. All immortality, even our own human immortality, is bound up in his immortality. By the way, while we're talking about this subject... Human beings are immortal. Y'all know that? We will live forever in eternity future. We will live somewhere. We will either live separated from God for eternity or we'll live in the presence of God. I mean, the, the question isn't, will we live forever? We will live forever. The question is, where will you spend your forever? But God alone has immortality in both the past and the future, and, and he dwells in unapproachable light. Paul, he goes Old Testament here with this description of God. No one can see God and live. God told Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. If, even in an eternity, I would say that we're not going to see God the Father, certainly in all of his glory, because no man can see God and live. And that's what makes the incarnation so amazing because Jesus, Jesus makes the unseeable seeable. 
Jesus makes the unbeholdable beholdable. We can see him. We can embrace him. He's the word that took on flesh and lived among us. And the incarnation made, made this possible. And here's the climax of this doxology. Paul says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We don't, we don't fight for our own glory. We don't, we don't look inward to fight outward. Like we, we just embrace the power within. That's how we, we fight these spiritual warfare battles. It's, it's the power of positive thinking. It's, it's the indomitable human spirit. That's what we access. No, it's not. We look upward to fight outward. We look inward in the sense that we look to the Holy Spirit that dwells within us to fight outward. And the victory goes to God. The power to do this comes from God. The honor goes to God. To Him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. These are the two things here that Paul tells Timothy to focus on. The imminent return of Jesus. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Stay focused on that. And then secondly, we fix our mind on the awesomeness of God. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul says implicitly here, focus on these things, young Timothy. Keep your mind overawed by God's magnificence and God's grandeur. And that'll catalyze spiritual strength within you. John Piper calls this a God-entranced vision of all things. We see everything in our world in light of who God is and what God has done. John the Baptist said in terms of his own life and ministry, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's the nature of spiritual warfare. We need a bigger view of God. And I, I know that term, spiritual warfare, is, the, I mean, people think that's like going around slaying people in the spirit. That's spiritual warfare. No, I mean, it, typically as it's described in the New Testament, it's these things. Flee sin. Follow the characteristics of God. And, and follow God. Fight the good fight of faith. Against sin, your flesh, and the devil. And then focus your attention on the God of the universe. Let me close with this. There's two great places in the New Testament where this fight the good fight language is invoked. And some of you savvy Bible readers, you'll know there's another place where Paul uses this language. And what's interesting, as you look at it, it's the same sequence of Greek words. Agonizomai agon. The first occurrence is 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight. But the second occurrence is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And it's possibly the last section of text that Paul ever writes. Because Paul is days from death, maybe even hours from death. And he says in that moment, I have fought the good fight. 
have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Y'all, y'all notice the, is that up on the screen? Y'all see that? Notice the past tense language used there. I have fought. I have finished. I have, and notice Paul, I'm fascinated by this. He doesn't say I've won the fight. He doesn't say I've won the race. I mean, the goal is not winning. The goal is finishing. So let me make an observation about those two passages right there, okay? The Christian life is basically lived between 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 4. It's lived between Timothy, fight the good fight, and Paul, at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. And, you know, so look out on the church here. Some of y'all are closer to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Others of y'all are closer to Paul in 2 Timothy 4. In other words, there's this spectrum between fighting the good fight and I'm dead. I'm just about dead. And we're all, we're all somewhere between those. For here, and, and for me, here's my desire. I want to keep following and serving Christ. I want to keep fighting the good fight of faith so that when my time comes and my race is over and my body is about to expire, I can say, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. God, help us to do that. Pray with me towards that end right now. Lord, we confess before you right now and before the world Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Lord. We confess him as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Sovereign One. The immortal God who dwells in unapproachable light and yet God In your goodness and your mercy towards us, you took on human flesh, you died on the cross for our sins, and you saved us. Lord, we believe that. We confess that before this world. We sing that even full-throated. Because it's true. It's the truest thing that we know.
And Lord, we acknowledge today in light of this passage of scripture that even though we have an eternity of bliss awaiting us, we still have a life to be lived on this side of eternity. We're still called to fight the good fight of the faith. We're still called to deal with sin and temptation. God, help us to press on. Help us to, to persevere. We know this is your work ultimately, Lord. There's somebody in this room right now who's fighting that battle and, and feeling like they're losing. God, would you remind them Greater is he that is in them that is, than he that is in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit than anything that exists in this world. And Lord, do help us to, to bite and to claw and to fight and to scratch all the way to the end of our life so that we can say, I've finished the race. kept the faith. Help us, Lord, to persevere. We know it's your work ultimately. And it's your strength that does this in us. So do that, Lord, I pray. Pray in the strong name of Jesus.